Hello and welcome to Theology Unleashed, the channel where Eastern theology meets Western skepticism. Today I've got two special guests on. I've got Kenneth Valpy, also known as Krishna Satya Swami, who's an academic in the Hare Krishna movement, and Ryan Mullins, who's a Christian academic. Uh, he focuses on conceptions of God and metaphysics. And today we're going to be discussing the Hare Krishna conception of God. And we've I've hosted two prior discussions to try to uh, flesh things out a bit so we could have a really clear discussion today and we're going to start off with ryan to, uh, asking questions to kenneth valpy to try and get really clear on the harry krishna conception of god so if time at the end then we'll run through some objections and uh, if you like this be sure to look at the other stuff or you know um, you can check out stuff ryan's published or other discussions i've done with kenneth valpy so we'll launch right into it thanks for coming on ryan and kenneth yeah, thank you thank you for the opportunity and, arjuna and let's get into it so ryan you you have some questions mm -hmm. yeah so so on in my own work i've identified like five different models of god that are being seriously debated today and those are classical theism neoclassical theism open theism panentheism and then pantheism and so the discussion that you had uh and like the, the previous interview i thought was really fascinating so i'm just trying to figure out a way to place the Hare, the Hare krishna like model of god like in that sort of system and maybe it might not fit in there um but i think it does but like i guess that's so that's one of my goals is sort of just see where i can place it so i can try to get a better understanding of it um so one of the things you guys talked about were, uh, within indian philosophy as a whole is these debates about monism like non-dualism and then dualism and so I'm just trying to figure out where does the Hare Krishna view of God fit in there? Like, is it like, is it a form of monism? Is it a, supposed to be a form of like non-dualism, like qualified non-dualism? Or is, like, w w what is it exactly? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. Um, something I mentioned uh, briefly, I think, in, in our last meeting, Arjuna, I wanted to I wanted to frame this discussion a little bit um, more broadly uh, because I think it's a point that's been very nicely made in um, Frank Clooney's book, um, Hindu God, Christian God, uh, in which he provides in the very end a chapter kind of a reply from a Hindu scholar, uh, Paramal Patil, Paramalji Patil, who is pointing out that it's good to look at the context of any such dialogue. Uh, and I do like to think of this as, as dialogue. Uh, we're, we're certainly not, I don't think we're interested in debating. We're trying to illuminate uh, our understandings of God. Um, and the point that Patil is making is that there's a history um, and it involves the fact that Christian theology has very much dominated and sort of apportioned for itself even the notion of theology. Um, and, and there are political contexts, uh, the fact that the West and particular, particularly the UK, the British, 
prevailed in India for a couple of hundred years uh, is significant. And, and the, the practice of theology done by Hindu, Hindu theologians has been in very different contexts from those of Christian theologians. And so from the get-go, we have, we have quite some challenges. Um, now, one thing that Frank Clooney is doing in his book is trying to see how to bridge across those, those challenges. And he wants to say that uh, a good starting point for such bridging is the use of reason. And then he's going on to show how reason has been he gives samples, you can say, of reason being applied in by Christian theologians to establish uh, arguments for the existence of God and for the excuse me the nature of God. And similarly, he's pointing out there have been um, efforts by Hindu theologians to doing the same, and he gives some examples of those. Um, but there's some asymmetry there, I would say, because, again, for various reasons, there's been a lot of very active Christian theology going on, um, I don't know if we can say constantly, from, from the time of Thomas Aquinas, <laughs> uh, possibly, or earlier, uh, whereas Hindu theology, let's say to the level of um, analysis that we see in the Christian side, at least in my particular world, universe of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, uh, has been relatively very minimal. One of the reasons for that is a sense that, whether justified or not, a sense that, well, um, it's all been said. <laughs> it's all been worked out. Uh, specifically, there's this sentiment in the Gaudiya Vaishnava um, world with regard to two theologians in particular from the 16th century, century uh, namely Srila Rupa Goswami and Srila Jiva Goswami, uh, uncle and nephew, incidentally. There's a feeling that what they did pretty much says it all. So what need for you know anything further ex except perhaps some details, some ex explication. It's not to say that there hasn't been further um, further work done, uh, but just the the sheer volume. I mean, I think the the number of of uh, theological works in Christian writing it must go in the certainly in the dozens, if not hundreds, published per year. 
probably mm. of varying qualities, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't possibly keep up with it. And because of the varying qualities, I do not want to keep up with it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, okay, let's get uh, down to the point, though. Uh, monism, non-dualism, or dualism. Uh, the, mm, the answer is neither of the above. <laughs> Uh, because we have the term achintya, beda, abeda, tattva. Uh, we want the best of both worlds. We don't like we don't like to go to one side or the other because we know that when you take one side or the other, you lose something uh, in the process. You lose um, you lose half of the story. We may say. Uh, we uh, have this word achintya, and please excuse me when I use technical terms uh, from the Sanskrit, but uh, they kind of help me to think, and I'll try to explain. Uh, but there is some, there is a rich vocabulary, vocabulary there, um, and that's part of the point I made previously. That you know we have we have language is issues as we go. Achintya is uh, gen generally translated as inconceivable, uh, something which cannot, ex cannot exactly be grasped uh, by the mind. Uh, at the same time, or maybe because of that, uh, the tradition jumps very quickly into the use of analogies. And as, as you were discussing in your discussion, um, the both of you, analogies have their limitations. Uh, and so we need to be careful with them. But in this particular context, the idea of difference, non-difference, uh, of, of what with what, first of all, uh, may be asked, uh, of uh, the supreme being or God uh, with his creation. This can be one kind of difference and non-difference. In any case, the example uh, that's typically given was given by Jiva Goswami in the 16th century is the sun and uh, the light rays of the sun. So he wants to say that there is, um, there is a difference, otherwise we wouldn't speak of uh, light rays, and we wouldn't say that uh, the sun is not in my room when the light of the sun is in my room. We would have to just say the sun is in my room. Now, there, of course, can be contexts in which one would want to say that. <laughs> and maybe that's pointing to limitations of analogy. Uh, but, yeah, the example is intended to show this kind of simultaneous one, oneness and difference. And we may want to say, well, that's not inconceivable. That's quite, that's very conceivable. Um, but to try to sort of pin it down exactly how it's conceivable 
um, may be a challenge. Does that help? Okay, so I want to make sure I'm following. So, possibly. So, so I've got this claim that it's it's not really monism, um, but it's not quite dualism, and so it's something like that's trying to take the best of both of those, uh, and so that's what I'm trying to figure out. So, the best of monism, because monism is like there's God and and I'm identical to God and you're identical to God, um, but on like dualism, like there's God and then there's all this other stuff. Uh, so I'm trying to figure out what the best of both of those would mean. Um, cause on one account, like I said, I've just got this strict identity and the other account, I don't have identity. Uh, so which, which aspects of monism is the Hare Krishna view taking? Um, cause it sounds like I've got a close relationship with God, but I'm not identical to God. Hmm. Okay. Uh, before I respond to that, I'm just wondering, Arjuna, I noticed mm -hmm. a huge video delay. Uh, in Ryan's video as I see it. Mm. I hope that's okay. <laughs> but there's like... Um, I think it's mainly just at your end because you're, you're, there's a delay for you. I think it's your internet's a bit weak. Uh-oh, it's my fault. Okay. What to do? Okay. Um, that's all right. Yeah, first I want to say this, this word monism is uh, something we kind of cringe at. Uh, I think we would prefer... <laughs> That's good to know. I like hearing that. <laughs> I, I think we would prefer non-dualism. Uh, in fact, this is something Keith Ward talks about, and I don't remember all of his reasoning, but he... Um, I remember in one, one of his talks, uh, I, he, was, he was my um, sort of um, mentor supervisor for a master's degree at Oxford. <laughs> and I remember him talking about this. That mo He said, there's no such thing as monism. It's, it's a contradict, it's an oxymoron. It's not possible. Uh, to speak of monism is, it just, he said it makes no sense. Anyway, non-dualism, I would say, is a, is a more friendly word. And... Uh, what we see is efforts, and I'm going to be referring a lot to Jiva Goswami, uh, because he, he's the person who did the, uh, what we may want to call a systematic theology uh, in his series of six treatises called the Sundarbhas. Um, he goes to quite... Uh, quite some lengths to to talk about this. There is non-duality between the self and uh, the what is called Paramatma, the supreme self, and there is also difference. Uh, and he he talked. I was just looking in uh, one of his treatises called the Paramatma Sandarbha. He um, he first talks about the non-difference, and then he talks about the difference. <laughs> uh, the the non-difference is there specifically in terms of basic things: consciousness, uh, aware awareness, sentience, and so on. Um, um, what else? I just looked at this briefly. 
Uh, no, it would take me some time to get back to that. Uh, the the general uh, the general theme that comes out, I would say, is uh, a distinction between quality and quantity, where uh, living beings have qualities, not to the full extent, but to a considerable extent, uh, of the supreme being, the supreme person or Bhagavan, uh, but by no means to the same extent, to the same power. And again, the analogy is given, sun and sun rays, um, and of course in modern science they talk about light being sometimes uh, understandable as particle and sometimes as wave. So thinking of uh, the jiva, the living being, as particle uh, from from the source, the sun. Uh, that distinction is is very strong. Did that get to mm-hmm. anything? Uh, almost, because I think it leads into my next question. Actually, okay. um, so because my next question was about uh, plenitude. Because um, you talked about how God is a, is a plenitude, and I think there's a lot of Western conceptions of that as well. Hmm. Um, so when you say things like uh, God is a plenitude, uh, and then you also make the claim that there's a there's a non difference uh, in my consciousness and God's consciousness, is 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 the claim something like my consciousness is identical to God's consciousness, or is it just that like uh, my consciousness? is grounded in, or, or God's the source of my consciousness. Is it, is it something like yeah. that? Yes, the latter. Um, okay. It's explained that, that... That helps me a lot, yeah. Okay. It's, ex, it's explained, yeah, and Jiva Goswami somewhere explains that uh, living beings are both conscious and consciousness. Uh, they're both... But as far uh, the pr- first point, though, about plenitude, it's not that God is plenitude, but rather he is the possessor of plenitude. And uh, I think this is an important distinction. Uh, the technical word is... Maybe bhakti. we should just quickly explain what that word means in case anyone didn't watch the other oh, stream. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I was going to say the, the word Bhagavan... Uh, it can be divided. There's bhaga, uh, which literally means share, as in uh, a, 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 a company having shares to sell. Uh, and van means possessor, possessor of shares. So the idea is that God, God has, God owns the whole company. <laughs> He, he has all the shares. Okay, so with that, then I do think there is a lot of overlap here with uh, different Western conceptions. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, there's this um, long tradition within Christianity called the divine ideas. Uh, and so the claim is God is supposed to be the source of like all the perfections, all the things that we find in, in the universe that are good or better to have, uh, like power, wisdom, beauty, goodness, knowledge, all these kind of things. God's mm-hmm. got all that. Uh, right. And then he is also the source of all those things. 
Uh, and then he also has, before he creates a universe, he has what are called the divine ideas, which are, he knows all the ways that he could be represented to varying degrees. So all of his perfections could be, could be uh, imitated or participated in uh, to varying degrees. And that's supposed to generate knowledge of like all the possible things that God could create. This is all coming uh, from Neoplatonism. Yeah. Neoplatonic mm -hmm. stuff. Yes, mm -hmm. it is that, and then, it, but you also see a lot of it in uh, Aristotelian sources as well. So some thinkers, early uh -huh. thinkers who are very uh, Aristotelian, they still have it. So it's it's kind of it's just like floating in the air. Uh, oh, okay. I guess is the best way to put it. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, it is it, it is it is the the Neoplatonic idea. I think is is more like comes more uh, quickly to mind. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so we have that kind of claim. And so I was curious if that was going on with these accounts of plenitude, because you made these kind of statements like God has all the qualities or he's possessor of all the qualities. Um, but then it sounds like, well, if he's possessor of all the qualities, then you could get some contradictions. So God right. like, possesses goodness and evil. And you're like, he possesses wisdom and ignorance. And you're like, well, what's going on? Um, and if it's more like, something like the divine idea is to be like, well, he has this idea of ignorance. He's not ignorant himself, but he has the idea of it. Then you don't have these contradictions. I didn't know if maybe something like that, some kind of discussion like that had happened at any point in Indian philosophy. Um, uh, possibly. Oh, did we, oh, it looks like he's frozen. <laughs> nice. Ah, mm -hmm. oh, you're back. Okay, cool. I'm back. Um, I have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, a great expert on Indian philosophy as a whole. Uh, so, you know, I have to say it's possible <laughs> that the discussion is mm, okay. there. But I need to always kind of pull it back to the tradition I'm a bit more familiar with. Uh, the idea of uh, mm, God being the possessor of plenitude uh, then quickly comes to the idea that God is the possessor of what are called shaktis. And shakti, usually translated as energy or power or potency, um, where the idea is that God can perfectly interact or engage with his energies as he pleases um, and as he finds appropriate. And an idea, an, an example came to my mind. I don't know if this will work. Uh, I, I noticed you're, it, it look, it, I got the impression you're a fan of heavy metal music. Um, mm -hmm. Am I right about that, Ryan? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So you might have a guitar. Maybe you're a musician. You play heavy metal music. Uh, but with that same guitar, you, the same person, could play um, South Indian raga music. And incidentally, if you go on YouTube, you can find some quite amazing electric guitar uh, Karnatak music <laughs> being done. <laughs> Interesting. So... Anyway, the point, the point is that any one person can produce different styles of music uh, for different purposes. Now, the idea you bring in this um, being the source of good, being the source of evil, 
And here we need we would need to venture into the topic of um, the specific major categories of energy that are uh, de sort of delimited. One of them is called the Swarupa Shakti. Uh, Swarupa has the sense of intrinsic um, that which, yeah, essential in some sense, but I don't know if that works with uh, Western terminology to say that. Um, and we often translate it as internal, internal energy. In contrast to external energy, um, bahiranga, we also have these terms, antara, Antara means internal, antara anga. Um, anga means a branch or a limb. Antaranga shakti and bahiranga shakti is the external. Uh, and this external energy is equated with or identified very much with the term maya, which you're probably familiar with. Uh, and it turns out the word maya is... Uh, having a lot of different translations. But in this context, it would be within this, the area of um, the discussion about evil. If we want to talk about evil, um, we would also want to talk about ignorance. And... I had one professor, um, the late Ninian Smart, who referred to himself as a Buddhist Episcopalian, with a hyphen in between. And he liked to quip uh, that, whereas in Christianity there's the notion of original sin, in Hindu traditions, uh, you would say rather original ignorance. Um, so anyway, ignorance is very much akin to the notion of this external energy of God, maya, and from this external energy of of God, of Bhagavan, is then um, occurring the situation in which a third energy functions, and that third energy consists of all of us, all living beings, uh, referred to as jiva tattva, or also tatasta shakti, uh, which means literally standing on the border or standing on the on the brink or standing on on the edge of something. And the idea is that we um, constitutionally, although we are of the same nature as God, we are. Um, uh, infinitesimal 
And as such, we find ourselves in a state in between, betwixt and between. Uh, we, are, we are kind of fundamentally liminal beings. And that um, puts us in a place where we can actually go either direction. Um, whether we turn one direction or the other, toward the external or toward the internal energy, that's, uh, that's another subject. But I'm sorry, I keep uh, probably veering off from your specific question, so maybe you can get me back to where you wanted <laughs> to no, discuss. No, that's good, because I... Because uh, I liked hearing about Ninian Smart, because he's someone I, I've always enjoyed his work. So that was really cool that you could study with him. Um, so, it was just so, yeah, one some, semester I had. Ah, just one semester. And uh, it was just before his retirement. Hmm. And uh, it was kind of obvious. His, his mood was extremely laid back. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, so my question originally was about uh, about the plenitude, and and so it's so everything you're describing it does sound very similar to a lot of a lot of Christian ideas about how God is supposed to be the source of all these perfections mm -hmm. uh, and the source of absolutely everything. Uh, and then these inner these way of talking about energies sounds really interesting because it sounds similar to a lot of uh, Eastern uh, Christianity because eventually mm. they develop this distinction between God and the energies of God. Uh, I've never been entirely clear on what that really amounts to. Um, mm. And I've tried, uh, but I just can't figure out what they're saying exactly. Mm. But they do use this kind of language at least. Uh, and so then, and then you're saying uh, within, so we've got these two different energies. We've got the internal and the external. And then we're kind of placed in the middle trying to decide which one do we want to follow. Right. And that's, was that, okay. So make sure I'm yeah. doing this. Yeah, good. Um, so I want to focus in on creation a bit um, and more mm -hmm. about the idea of how God's the source. So I can try to figure out again, still how to, where to place this uh, Hare Krishna view, because I feel like I'm getting a better understanding. So mm -hmm. in your, in the video you've done with Arjuna, you talked about, uh, emanation and an eternal creation and how it's not really creation ex nihilo. And so I was curious if you could kind of maybe like spell some of that out a little bit more. Like what, what, is, what exactly would it mean for the universe or multiverse or whatever else um, to be an emanation of God? Uh, what it means? Well, uh, as I'm sure you know, there's the notion also, and this gets into the subject of time, which I think uh, is one of our topics for later, possibly, uh, that there's, there's a strong notion of the cyclical nature of time. And implicated in this is the idea that there is a, a cycling of, we may want to say creation, um, or we want to maybe prefer cosmic manifestation um, but there is a, there is a, a a creation and then there is a winding up and then there is again creation and again there is winding up and this is this is described in quite colorful ways I must say um, in in that aspect of the literature which is 
some may feel is too anthropomorphic for their taste, but it describes how Vishnu, as the um, sort of immediate source, the immediate form of God who manifests this world, uh, he is in a state of what is called yoga nidra. Uh, he's sleeping. God sleeps. But when he sleeps, uh, he dreams, one could say, but what does he dream? He dreams this world. And how does this world manifest? He just breathes out. <laughs> so there's the idea is that there's no effort on the part of God. It's not that God became tired after six days and uh, welcomed a rest on the seventh day. Right, uh, yeah. Which I'm, I'm not, you know, trying to... Mm, I don't want to uh, belittle that idea. I think that's uh, also a wonderful description of God's creation. But uh, it is a, quite a contrast. He's in the in in the Hindu traditions more broadly, not just my own. Uh, God is creating simply by by breathing, in a sense, without any effort at all. Um, so manifestation is coming, and and then the breathing out, and then there's a breathing in. And with that breathing in, it's understood that all the uh, all the living beings who have uh, been present in that, let's say, creation, uh, are withdrawn into a state of something like deep sleep um, into a sort of um, holding pattern until the next creation. Um, so, and, and backing up a little, what is then the purpose of creation? The purpose of creation is for living beings who being minute particles, we may say, of God, uh, one of their qualities similar to that of God is independence. But their independence is minute in comparison to the absolute independence of God, Bhagavan. But with that independence, they can pursue their desires. And desire is very much at the core uh, of mm, so much of what we can call broadly Vedic thought. What is this thing called desire? <laughs> and how is it a problem? How is it that desire uh, leads uh, to suffering? And how is it that desire uh, leads or is related with evil and ignorance? So anyway, the creation is a place where it, it's, um, it's a kind of playground, if you like, a place where, uh, where we can all go about our activities in the 
vain pursuit of happiness, of permanent mm -hmm. happiness, is the general idea. And okay. we're, yeah. we're, you know, we're given all the time we want to do that, not just one lifetime. <laughs> right. And so, okay, so I want to get into some of the details here. Yeah. Uh, so I want to go back to the, the claim that, so, so it's like God's sleeping, he's dreaming up the universe, mm -hmm. and he breathes out. So it's all very effortless. Uh, so I get that. And so that seems like that's a demonstration of, if you really want to say God's like all powerful, well, then creating a universe that's going to be effortless, right? Um, now, does God freely create the universe? Well, certainly, because uh, there's no one compelling, there's no one compelling him to do so. Um, uh, the Upanishads, I think it's the Aitareya Upanishad or one of them, uh, is saying God glances at his creation, and uh, as a result, uh, the creation manifests sa aikshata tatejo asrijata and asrijata that's a past tense uh, uh, manifested we could say but it has the sense it's interesting it has a sense of spilling over it kind of spills over from him it uh, it's it's uh, his energies. They they just spill out, and there you have it. <laughs> you have a universe. Uh, mm -hmm. So, but but some at some point, I think we need to bring in another major concern for our tradition, and that is bhakti devotion, and. Uh, because the sense is there that why does God do anything? He does it out of love and specifically for his creatures and specifically to exchange love uh, or bhakti with his creatures. And that the only reason he does anything is for that purpose. Uh, and what is the result of that exchange? It is an expand. It is the endless expanding uh, of bliss of ananda. Uh, there's this notion anandam buddhivardhanam. Uh, there's a, an ocean of bliss of joy, and it's. There, there are no borders. It just keeps expanding. And God, God continues to discover new uh, features of that bliss. So I think that's going to get into the subject of knowledge of God, God's knowledge. Um, it's always yeah, complete come back and to that it's always bit. expanding. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's really fascinating. So I, want, I definitely want to come back to that. Um, so God discovers uh, new forms of bliss. Um, so, okay. So, so you answered a couple questions for me in that, so which is really good. So, because so one of the questions I was going to ask is, why would God create anything at all? Because I know that there is this old Jaina objection to arguments from design 
for the existence of God saying, well, but why would God create anything at all on a whim? That's, that's not, that's, that's, that's not a good reason. That's, that's, it's, that's mm. awful. But you said the reason is God mm-hmm. creates out of love in order to exchange love with creatures. Right. So that seems like that's the answer to that, that Jaina objection. And that's a, it's fascinating for me. You mentioned Jainism. Uh, I've, I've only scratched the surface on, on Jain tradition, but I find it quite fascinating. Uh, they deny the existence of a creator God. On the other side, uh, there is a sense in which their perfected beings, uh, the Tirthankaras, are, they're very godlike. But one of the features of their Tirthankaras, as far as I've read, is because of their absolute and total detachment from this world, uh, there's no question of having any exchange with them. Right. But although there's no question of having any exchange with them, uh, in the mm, Murti Pujaka Shvetambara tradition of, of uh, branch of, of Jainism, they worship the Tirthankaras. They have Murtis, they have images of the Tirthankaras in their temples. They make offerings of food to them. And it's understood um, he's not taking, (laughs) (laughs) it's just there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He's not accepting, uh, the Tirthankara is not accepting it because he has no need for it. Right. Um, But it's good for the worshiper to give up uh, something. And so he or she gives up uh, to the Tirthankara. So I've got these omniscient beings that seem like they're pretty powerful. Um, they don't have any concern towards me, but yeah. I still like try to worship them and try to give sacrifices and offerings to them. But I know that they don't really have any concern towards me, but it's good for <laughs> yeah. me to do that. Yeah, I can see yeah. the, I can see the irony there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay. So I want to get back to make sure I'm getting this, this account, right? So you've got, so you've got this creation. So God um, is just always creating. Uh, and then always withdrawing creation back into himself, and then always, so there's this constant for all eternity, uh, breathing in and out, I guess, of creation. Mm. Uh, And it's a free act in the sense that it's not compelled by anything outside of God. Uh, And the reason he creates is in order to exchange love with creatures. Is that, am I following so far? Yeah, that's, I think, that's good. So uh, another question in this area is, is God have um, what's called like the uh, alternate possibilities in terms of freedom? Does God have the ability to just say, I don't want to create anything? That's an interesting question um, because I don't think it comes up in the tradition. Uh, that's, you know, that's a, that's a major hypothetical question. Sure. <laughs> that's like, <laughs> that's like, that's like one of the biggest, if not the biggest possible if question one could ask. If God. <laughs> um, I think the, the attitude is, where is the question of such an if? Because uh, it's obvious that he doesn't make that option. Mm-hmm. He doesn't take that. Now, another um, 
sort of angle on this might be taken. And that is um, the sort of in standard the sort of list. standard list of six types of plenitude, wealth, strength, fame, beauty, knowledge. The last one is uh, vairagya, renunciation. And the idea is uh, that we admire someone who is detached. Um, so that is, that's an opulence. That's a, that's a kind of plenitude. And God exhibits that uh, to the per, uh, in a perfect way or in a complete way. He can be, he, he and she, uh, <laughs> that's another subject, can be, uh, he can create, manifest, be totally involved with the world and be perfectly and completely detached, uh, being in himself self-satisfied, atma-rama, uh, which means satisfied in himself. So mm, would he have the option to not create? I think the answer would be yes. He has the option, and he doesn't choose it. And the reason for not choosing it would be uh, the primacy of personhood, which involves relationship. So Bhagavan, the, the, this notion of ultimate reality as Bhagavan, um, encaps or brings with it uh, the notion of personhood, uh, in which relationality is, is kind of integral. Does that make sense? It does. It, it, it maps onto some really ancient discussions in Christianity and some contemporary discussions in Christianity. Um, uh-huh. So when the doctrine of creation out of nothing started getting developed um, kind of around the 280s or so, um, you start to see these arguments about God's size, that God has the freedom to refrain from creating. And they start mm-hmm. making a really big song and dance out of this. <laughs> um, and, 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 uh, to put it, yeah, to put it one way, I guess. Yeah. Um, but then, well, I'm glad things. they were dancing. Yes. Sometimes they we dance put sometimes. a lot of, we also put a lot of emphasis on dancing in our church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very good. So, um, so one of the things they were trying to argue was that if God doesn't have the ability to refrain from creating, then he's really not as powerful as a being that has to create. It was, was some of the arguments that eventually get developed. Right. Um, but then there's this other tension within the Christ, Christian tradition. Um, you see this in people like Pseudo Dionysius, who uh, affirm something that looks very similar to what you were talking about earlier, uh, where God has this just this overwhelming amount of goodness. His goodness is what, what they'll say is necessarily diffusive. Like it just has to spill over and create mm. more and more and more. Uh, and yeah. so on this account, it's impossible for God to refrain from creating. He just couldn't have because his goodness just just compels him to. He has to uh, create. And so you see these kind of debates within the history of Christian thought of going back and forth of, 
does that does that really make sense of what we want to say about creation being free uh, and God being all powerful, but then also mm-hmm. this idea of God being this overwhelming goodness and this overwhelming love. So there's this kind of back and forth you see in Christian thought, and so it sounds like the Hare Krishna view is falling on the side of I mean God God could have refrained, but like why why would he? Oh, he's right. like, all the reasons in the world, like the best reasons are to create, is what yeah. it sounds like you're saying. Yes, but and there's always a but. Sure. Um, in in Hindu traditions, I had one professor. Uh, he started out his his lecturing on the first day. He said, "Now, when we're talking about Hinduism, we have to understand one thing, and that is that whatever you say about it." The opposite is also true. Sure. <laughs> um, so we're speaking about creation, and that is, um, we kind of assume with that um, phenomenal creation, what we, what we all experience, this world. Now, there's a, a major concern in our tradition that, and and this is elaborated extensively in uh, the later commentarial literature, that for, for purposes of convenience, I'll use the term material and spiritual, and I know those can be problematic terms, but and just for contrast. So we can say what we experience is material world, uh, and this is a kind of reflection, that sort of language is used sometimes, of a spiritual world. Um, and that spiritual world, it's understood, is not manifesting and unmanifesting, and it's not subject to the cycles and so on, but rather it is permanently active it's permanently it's ongoing it's it's happening as we speak um the 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 eternal dance of the spiritual world is going on as we speak and and so what we have here is um is through a glass darkly it's you know it's a it's a reflection at best, of that world. Um, and so to the question, could, could God decide not to create? It, it's sort of a moot question when it comes to thinking of uh, in such terms. Mm-hmm. So I have a, one more question on this topic, and it might be a moot mm-hmm. question as well. Um, so a lot of times, a lot of different debates within Christian thought and within uh, uh, Islamic and Jewish thought. So you got this question of why would God create anything at all? And you've given an answer to that. Uh, and another question is why would God create a particular kind of universe, like like the one we find ourselves in? Like of all the possible universes that you could create, like why this one? And I don't know if there's been any reflection on that within uh, uh, Krishna thought. Uh, the first point I would make is that question wouldn't come up because he doesn't just create one universe. Right. <laughs> He's creating countless universes. <laughs> right. So it really could be 
I want to try out all the possibilities. So I'm just doing that. I'm just going it, to do that. It could be taken that way. Um, that's an interesting question. There's, hmm, there is a notion, uh, what is called Kalpa Veda Nyaya. Uh, but this is more in relation to time. Where a, a question comes up, well, how is it that uh, this particular, hmm, let's say, detail of uh, the activities of God in this world, when he comes to this world, are described a certain way in in this. Um, I'm speaking now still within the frame of the Vedic tradition, post-Vedic, um, and described in a different way in another scripture. And the answer is, one way this is answered, sort of standard way, is Kalpabeda Nyaya, uh, the logic of different times, different creations, different kalpas. Kalpa is a, it's like a super, a very long period of time. Uh, but we might apply that uh, in, in a certain sense also to verses. That things can go on different ways in different universes. Now, does that mean that there aren't um, physical laws in different universes? Well, um, whenever we raise such a question, we generally hesitate to just say, no, not possible, because why would you want to limit the power of God uh, to make you know, a different set of laws. Sure. Yeah. So that, that makes sense to me. Uh, so I wanted to get into the time stuff because uh, that's, um, I, my first book is on that and I'm writing a book at it, uh, on it again at the moment. Okay. Um, so it I sounds did glance. Like, mm, I oh, just, yeah. I just, uh, I wish I had more time, but I saw, I think the title of maybe it's a recent article of yours exploring the idea of risk theory mm. to God's knowledge. I don't know if that's going to feed into your question here, but I thought it's really um, interesting. If, if we have time I'd to like get to into foreknowledge. Yeah. Yes. So that was a paper my wife and I uh, co-authored um, because she's a oh, biologist. Oh. And so we, uh, looked at some problems for this view called open theism where God does not know the future. Uh, mm -hmm. so, but yeah, we can, we can talk a bit about that in a minute. Um, but yeah, so the time stuff though, so it sounds like time is an eternal thing. Like it's always existed, mm. uh, on this view. And I know that there are different, um, different, uh, like passages in like the Bhagavad Gita and, uh, different texts where it is said that time is this like eternal uncaused substance. Mm. Um, but I know that there's different debates over, within the Indian traditions of how to understand that. So what is the Hare Krishna view on this? Is time like an eternal uncaused substance or is time like something else? Well, you mentioned the Gita um, mm -hmm. where Krishna identifies himself with time. Um, and I think it's interesting and possibly significant uh, to see the context of that particular statement. It's, it's kind of um, 
it's it's a state and he says kalos me lokakshayakrit pravidha lokam samahartumi ha pravidha time i am destroyer of the worlds and you can sort of hear the the drums in the background you know uh and the sound of lightning and so on uh crack and, and the thunder cracking uh the context of that in the narrative is that arjuna and that's not the arjuna we're talking with today sure, yeah <laughs> uh, but the so to say original arjuna in his dialogue with krishna on the battlefield prior to the beginning of the battle uh is he's he's requested krishna to show him uh what he calls virat rupa uh his cosmic form now this will be the second time that krishna does this in the in the mahabharata not in bhagavad gita bhagavad gita is a small section of the mahabharata but earlier he has shown a uh quote unquote uh cosmic form um and that's another story but in that occasion he showed a form in which so many manifestations or features of the universe were manifesting out of his body whereas the the cosmic form that he's showing arjuna in the bhagavad gita is the opposite of that he's like a cosmic vacuum cleaner or you know he's he's like i don't know the original black hole or something and everything is going into his mouth he's like he's like munching on <laughs> on soldiers and and it's a horrible horrible scene it's um it's it's throwing arjuna into a state of he's terrified by this um it's uh what's uh rudolf otto's expression mysterium oh. tremendum at fascinans mm. uh it's it's an awesome experience and in that situation then arjuna says tell me who are you to which then krishna responds i am time destroyer of the worlds and here he's specifying time in relation to destruction um and i mentioned in our previous discussion with arjuna it's uh, the word used there column for time indicates that which impels that which pushes and forces ultimately to destruction so here krishna's identifying himself with time for i would say a specific purpose and that is for well let's put it this way for the atheist for the for the um for the card carrying atheist to have a sense of of the fact that god does exist um 
that everyone has a sense of time and uh, we are all being impelled by that sense. We, we are ultimately being impelled uh, to death. And so that experience, Krishna is saying to Arjuna's, that is me. So understand, if you can't understand anything else about God and you want to deny the existence of God, okay, um, because Krishna also says in the Gita that he uh, reveals himself to that extent and in that way that one wants to approach him. There's a kind of mirroring in a sense. So, okay, you only want to know me as time, then I'm just time. Okay, so it's it's a very powerful statement, um, and that's and I found it just incredibly fascinating. Uh, mm. So there's so I think there's this is another area where there is some common ground um, between some uh, uh, Indian thinkers and some Christian thinkers. So when you mm. get to the scientific revolution uh, with people like Isaac Newton and Samuel Clark, uh, Pierre Gassendi, and, and some of these other kinds of, of people, they want to identify time with God as well. Not necessarily in the sense of like mm. death and destruction, but as this eternal uncaused substance that somehow explains the difference between past, present, and future that makes change possible, um, that's supposed to be the source of all these kind of uh, these moments of time. And so they want to identify mm. time with, as an attribute or a mode of God. And mm. that sounds somewhat similar to this, some of these claims I see with, among different uh, like, uh, Hindi, uh, Indian thinkers where there's this strong identification between God and time. And they'll do the same thing with space and other things like that. Here's another par- parallel, though. So mm. earlier you had mentioned about how when God sleeps, he dreams up the universe, and then he wakes, and he breathes it in, uh, and then all the, diff- all the different souls are kind of in this sort of like deep sleep while they're waiting for the next universe to come into existence. Well, during mm. the, uh, during actually, the, actually the whole thing mm-hmm. is going on. Oh yeah. Actually the whole, whole thing is going on during a kind of sleep. Oh, um, okay. There's emanation, they're coming back and he's just breathing in and out and having a good sleep. But there's also, I mean, this gets into the more, um, how to say non-philosophical side, but, mm-hmm. Uh, it's understood in the annual cycle of months that God, uh, in a cert- on a certain date, uh, which takes place hmm, well, uh, it, it it happens at a certain date. God goes to sleep, and four months later, He wakes up. Okay, and those and those two days are uh, days of celebration, especially in South India. Uh, okay, anyway, back to the philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, okay, no, that's interesting. That's that's right. Um, <laughs> so you've got this kind of picture of God creating a universe that exists for a while, and then God uh, destroys it, and then all the souls are waiting for another universe to come into existence. Within the scientific uh, revolution, um, a bunch of different thinkers have a similar, they give a thought experiment to try to defend their view of time, where they'll say, well, imagine God creates a universe, lets it go for a while, and then he destroys it, and then he waits a thousand years, 
and then it creates another universe. And so the thought experiment was, is that possible? And if you answered yes, then you'd be supposedly affirming what's called the absolute theory of time. Whereas if you answered no, then you'd have to affirm some kind of what's called like a relational view of time, where time is not a mm-hmm. substance, it's not a thing. Uh, instead, it's just a relationship between events. Mm-hmm. Um, so they use this, like, this kind of thought experiment to try to actually do really heavy lifting in their, in their philosophy and in their science to go, this is possible. Like It really is the case that God could just let a universe cease to exist and wait a thousand years and create another one. And then when I'm mm-hmm. looking at some of these different uh, Indian philosophers, they're saying, well, it's not just possible, that's what God does. Uh, and so I, so I just find that really fascinating that there's different groups, not, don't seem like they have any kind of uh, conversations at that point, but they're coming up with very similar kind of ideas. Yeah, that is interesting. I guess uh, a Vaishnava would ask then also, why does it have to be why does it have to be either or? Uh, why does time have to be either relational or uh, absolute? Why not both? Oh, um, so on this t- sort of account, so if you say time is a substance, it's the thing that makes a uh, change possible. It's the thing that makes events exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas if you want to make a time a relationship between events, then um, the events are the fundamental features of reality. So it's, 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 it's kind of like what's more fundamental. Uh, mm-hmm. And so the absolute theory is wanting to say time is more fundamental. And then the relationalist goes, no, events are more fundamental. Well, here's where things get kind of weird. So if you ask the relationalist, tell me what an event is, my, my dear friend. They will tell you it is a substance having a property at a time. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wait, hang on, hang on. You told me that events were more fundamental than time. And now you've got, you snuck time into the picture. Um, sounds like time's more fundamental. So it's, so that's kind of where the debate is, is in terms of what's Uh more fundamental to reality. Uh, and so one of the debates I'm aware of in the Indian tradition is, um, with this, uh, Nyaya philosopher named, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher his name, uh, Raghunatha Shiromani, I think is how I say his name. And so he, Raghunatha Shiromani, yeah. Shiromani. 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 Okay, good. Okay. Cause I, I've been writing about him lately, but not never heard anybody like say his name other than at one <laughs> conference. Uh, so he has this argument where he looks at uh, a bunch of different things within the metaphysics that he's inherited, where they want to say, here's this, this uh, time is an eternal uncaused substance. Space is this eternal uncaused substance. The ether, sound, all these other things are eternal uncaused substances. And then you've got God as well. And he goes, mm. well, this is, We've got one too many eternal uncaused substances laying around. Let's 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 get rid of some of these. So we can make God do all of that. So we really and so he looks at some of these passages where it says like, "I am time," and he's like, "Well, yeah, God, God's this eternal uncaused substance that makes change possible. He's the source of these moments. He's the thing that explains the difference between past, present, and future. So God is time. There we go. Don't need to have this extra substance lying around. God can do it. And he does that same thing for all the other sort of uh, substances." And that is taking place is like about a hundred years or so before Isaac Newton and these others are doing the same thing in the Western tradition. Uh, and again, there's no dialogue between them, but I just find it fascinating that there's these people yeah. doing this kind of work around the same kind of era. But yeah, I think that's a, an interesting spot where there'd be some common ground between, uh, I guess, some Indian thinking and some Christian thinking. Yeah, well, uh, there's there's been some... 
some discussion in recent decades, um, especially from the Hindu side, uh, sometimes more or less convincing, um, where attempts are made to um, make connections between quantum physics or relativity Mm -hmm. and uh, some of the ideas from Vedic or post-Vedic uh, writings. Um, oh, but I wanted to say that there's also been some quite serious Indian uh, philosophical exploration of how to articulate and understand um, Indian thought in relation to Western thought, whether theological or otherwise. Um, I'm thinking of uh, his name. I forget his first name, but Mati Lal. Uh, there's there there have been a couple. Uh, yeah, I don't. Oh, uh, Karkainen. Mm, no. Oh. There's also J J L Meta, okay. who was teaching at Harvard at one time. Uh, he was he was into Heidegger and you know Husserl and phenomenal thing but uh interesting thing well i want i mentioned him specifically this is going way off maybe but i mentioned him because he ends up uh although he doesn't come from this godia vaishnava tradition himself he ends up finding in specifically the godia vaishnava tradition uh some insights uh, which he found are extremely valuable for for deeper understanding of um, the things that Heidegger and so on were talking about. And I'm it's been a while since I've read this stuff, but um, he particularly likes the idea of divine absence, which is there in our tradition. So God is present, he's everywhere, um, but the feeling of a devotee is that God is absent. And I think it's an interesting um, kind of response to the atheist. The atheist says there is no God. And the Vaishnava says, well, I kind of relate to what you're saying. I feel the same way. (laughs) He's he's not here. (laughs) Yeah. So. Okay, so the next question I had for you um, was about freedom and foreknowledge. So, mm. so I want to make sure I, I I got you right from what I watched in the video. So it sounded like mm. you were saying there were certain thinkers who claimed that God would give up his foreknowledge in order it to enter into genuine relationships. Was Is that accurate? We could put it that way, I suppose. Um, I may have been mentioning Vishwanath Chakravarti. Uh, Thakur, he, um, in his commentary to one passage, and I think I talked about this, uh, where he's feeling fear, and uh, Vishwanath is saying, yes, he genuinely feels fear. He is exchanging with his devotee 
uh, he is uh, performing what is called Leela, divine, divine pastime. And he is in the position of being a small child uh, with his mother chasing him to punish him. And he feels real fear. He has real tears. <laughs> uh, so it may have been in that context that I mentioned. Now, there's another context, though, and this is not yeah. from commentators, but going again back to the Bhagavad Gita, the whole Bhagavad Gita, as again you may know, uh, is Krishna persuading Arjuna to stand up and fight in this battle. Because Arjuna has had a kind of emotional breakdown before the battle. He doesn't want to fight and kill his own relatives. He says, I'm not going to have anything to do with this. Uh, and so then the Gita is, is Krishna's reply, basically. And at the end of this whole discussion, he says, Yatechasi tatakuru, do as you desire. So he gives Arjuna a choice. But that's not quite the whole story, because just uh, four verses prior to this, he says, Prakritis tvang niyokshasi, niyokshati. You will follow your nature. And this has been kind of a a theme song through the Gita, uh, why he's telling Arjuna, you should fight because it's your duty. And why is it your duty? Well, it's your nature. Uh, You're a fighter, and you're never going to change that in this life. Um. Even if you don't fight in this in this battle, you're going to go fight somewhere else. <laughs> so, uh, so you might as well just do your duty. <laughs> uh, but the point here, with regard to foreknowledge, is uh, it seems like it's giving space for um, not knowing what will result. Uh, at least in the details. Okay. So it's not like, okay, let me use some Christian terms. Uh, So in contemporary discussions, there's this difference between what they'll call exhaustive foreknowledge. So God knows like all the details of everything that's going to happen. And then you've got some other people who are open theists and they'll say, well, God can foreknow like some stuff maybe things he's determined that he's declared i'm definitely going to do that at some point uh and then some other things he can make really really good predictions and then some other stuff it's just it's inevitable that these things will happen so certain aspects of the future might be somewhat determined but a lot of futures opened uh so god doesn't have exhaustive foreknowledge he, he can't have exhaustive foreknowledge there's a sense in which a bunch of things in the future they're unsettled they're not determined and God's just going to say, let's wait and see. Let's see what happens. And so I was trying to figure out where would, uh, the Hare Krishna view I might would, land on that. Yeah, I would say that is um, not unreasonable. And at the same time, 
it's a kind of both and situation that, that if God wants to know something in all detail, um, again, being all powerful, then there would be no nothing to inhibit him from that. Um, but it's it's open uh, again from the Gita. We could take uh, a statement. I think it's in the seventh chapter. Veda ham samatitani vartamanani charjuna bhavishani chabutani mam tu veda nataschana. He says, I know all beings, bhutani, uh, in the past, in the present, and in the future, uh, but me no one knows. So we can say the thrust of the statement is a contrast. But it's an interesting one because it's about knowing persons. Um, and, and when we talk about knowledge, broadly speaking, what I personally find especially intriguing is to think about what does it mean to know a person? Um, I might know your particular preference for a certain kind of music. And I may know, know a few other things about you, but I don't know any of your friends. I don't know your wife. I don't know their friends. You know, we could go infinitely mm -hmm. into thinking about just uh, the that aspect of knowing a person, namely, who does that person know and how much or what does that person know about those he or she knows? You see what I'm saying? And yet do, we can yeah. very readily say, we can very readily say, oh yes, I know Ryan. Although we've only met for the last hour or so. <laughs> Yeah. And what right. Krishna is okay. saying in the Gita is, I know all beings in the past, the present, and the future. Me, no one knows. He's being a little bit rhetorical here because uh, we understand otherwise, actually. Uh, his associates, his devotees, his intimate um Parishads, they they do know him, but here we can say, in a general sense, he's saying, "No, no one knows me." But as far as foreknowledge goes, Krishna hints at foreknowledge by saying, uh, "Bhavishyati," uh, those who exist in the future, I know. Okay. So I want to, I think I understand the claim here. Um, so, so he has some kind of foreknowledge, which you might call like propositional knowledge, knowledge that something is the case or that, that something will be the case, but God doesn't have like an intimate personal knowledge of like an acquaintance with these people because maybe they don't exist yet. Uh, is, is, is the claim something like that? I think the claim is more um, 
No, I think it's what you're suggesting sounds a bit like a more of a superficial knowledge, and I think it's not that. Um, <laughs> but he's not he's not elaborating. Um, but the sense I get from other literature is that because he is, in addition to being Bhagavan, he is Paramatma. Uh, Paramatma means the higher self, and it's understood, uh, is in some sense accompanying us um, as we as we go about our daily lives, our entire lives, and our lives from one body to another. And so in that sense, we can say he knows us quite quite intimately and perhaps as well, if not better than we know ourselves. Right. Yeah, that's what I was I was thinking. So does he doesn't have that knowledge though until we exist. Like um because he couldn't have that kind of intimate knowledge unless we unless we exist. Um well, but we always exist. <laughs> oh right. Okay. I, I see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right okay because i'm still thinking in terms of uh i haven't always existed but that would be false because i would have been reincarnated uh however many times in the in the eternal past right i see okay yeah yeah okay so okay so that's and an this interesting is, account here mm-hmm. this is part of the explanation also of the whole notion of karma and carrying over uh, from our previous lives uh, our actions from a previous life, and then consequences for those actions happening in this life. Mm-hmm. Um, who's who's keeping track? You can say it's understood that would be uh, that would be Paramatma. Okay. Oh, that's okay. Actually, so I want to make sure I'm getting that. So, so on 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 the on the Hari Krishna view, God is in charge of of karma. Is that, yes, is that right? He's he's in charge, but rather indirectly. Um, okay. He it's he he's not particularly concerned about it. It's kind of a a mechanical. Yeah, sometimes it's it's taken as sort of moral law, and in that mm-hmm. sense. Like we have uh, physical laws, so there's a moral law, and and that pretty much works as it's going to work. But still, uh, there is some oversight, if you like, and uh, that would be specifically that would be accomplished by Paramatma. Right. Okay. That's what I was thinking because I knew on some accounts, karma is just there. God doesn't really have a say over it. And so that's when I know Janus philosophers like to come in and be like, ah, you don't really have an all-powerful being. Um, whereas I knew other traditions would say, well, no, it's karma is like a law of nature, but God's the one who puts it in place. And so it sounds like the Hare Krishna view is saying something like that, that it's, it is somewhat like a law of nature, but it's something that God, like all the laws of nature, God put that in place. Yeah. Uh, he is the lawmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my teacher, my guru, Bhaktivedanta Swami, Prabhupada, he would 
often say wherever we see a law, we have to assume there's a lawmaker. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So that's, yeah. So there's a lot of overlap there uh, in terms of um, different, like, uh, I guess, common ground for Christian thought and, and Hare Krishna thought. Uh, because there's a lot of these kind of uh, arguments for the existence of God saying, if you find a law, you need a lawmaker. Uh, and mm-hmm. so the moral law, there's a lot of moral arguments for the existence of God in the Christian tradition. Who They want to make these kind of moves going, well, look, there's this moral law. There's cause and effect. There are consequences and so on. Yeah. Well, well, there's got to be a lawgiver, a divine lawgiver. Yeah. Right. So I think that would be another area where there's a lot of common ground. Um, so there's another topic I wanted to get into that I, that was that came up when you were talking about uh, foreknowledge, which was kind of God's emotional life, and and that you had had in the video about immutability and God's mutability, and then impassibility and God's passibility. Uh, and so I'm hmm. just trying to figure out where because you and you mentioned a lot of different thinkers, and I wasn't certain which ones were Hare Krishna thinkers and which ones were in in different Indian <laughs> traditions. Oh. So I'm, I guess I just want to know. Um, like, which is like, so if I'm looking at the Hare Krishna understanding of God, or at least what some Hare Krishna thinkers, how they understand God, what would God's emotional life be like? Does God have a wide range of emotions or is God like in a state of pure bliss? Like what, what's going on? Oh, he has so many emotions. <laughs> uh, and that is elaborated especially by Srila Rupa Goswami, again, 16th century in a work called uh, Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. Sindhu means ocean, uh, the ocean of the nectar of devotion, we can translate it. And he's uh, dealing specifically and mainly and specifically with defining what is this thing that's being called bhakti, uh, which we translate usually as devotion, What is it and what is it not? Uh, And within what it is, what is the experience of bhakti? And is that an experience that only uh, the likes of we might have, or is that something that also God has? And uh, he will argue that it is a relationship And therefore, uh, there is exchange. And I mentioned, going back to the Gita, the sort of basic idea of reciprocation that's there, um, that as one approaches me, he says um, in the fourth chapter of the Gita, I respond, I reciprocate um, in kind, essentially. In kind and in extent, we could say. So, um, so Rupa Goswami is describing what is called rasa, and the word rasa takes on huge significance. Literally, it can just mean juice. <laughs> uh, it uh, extends. It has uh, quite an extensive uh, semantic field. And it comes to mean taste. And then, uh, as in English, it has the sense of aesthetic taste. And aesthetic 
taste then goes to aesthetic emotion. And the idea is that in interactions with God, uh, there is, um, at, at a kind of basic level, there is an aesthetic principle, I put it that way. And that manifests as what is called rasa, and that can be one of uh, a variety of emotions. And there are categories of types of emotions or uh, sort of basic relationships, uh, which are then enriched by more specific and temporary, more temporary emotions. Um, the whole thing is, is, can be compared to uh, producing a, some food preparation in which there are various components mixed in, including spices, including uh, you know, various ingredients. All of that is extensively analyzed by the tradition. Mm. Uh, and the, the, there are within this, there's an understanding of five principal sorts of relationship one might have with God. And these are considered in a kind of hierarchy. Uh, at the bottom of the hierarchy is what's called shanta uh, rasa. Shanta means peaceful. And in this relationship, uh, the relationality is mm, quite minimal. And the emphasis might be on what uh, we might in the Western traditions consider awe and veneration. So regarding God from a distance with awe and veneration. It could also be regarded as the relationship that, um, that philosophers have with God, that I don't really want to you know, interact with God. That sounds too, I don't know, whatever. I can't relate to that. But I like to think about God. <laughs> and so that's also a relationship, and it's called Shanta. And then a step up from Shanta would be Dasya, uh, from the word Dasa, which means servit, servit, service. And so it's a relationship of seeing oneself as a servant in relation to God as master, um, which can have within that category any number of varieties. Then moving a step up from there, because the Dasa relationship is one of uh, regarding God as superior to oneself, uh, certainly at a, at a minimum, the next relationship is sakyaras. Sakya means friendship. And here, the superiority of God falls away. It, it goes out of the picture. And one may 
again, there are subdivisions. One can still regard God as a superior friend. But in general, there's a sense that I am equal with God. But one is not thinking at that time that the person I'm relating to is God. Because how can you relate to God if you're thinking he is? Uh, how can you relate as a friend if you're thinking that he is God? <laughs> mm -hmm. It's not going to work. And then a step further above uh, in, and step, stepping up in terms of uh, what is considered greater intimacy, and with intimacy also intensity, is a relationship of parent and child. It's called vatsalya, in which one sees oneself as, in some sense, superior to God. Oh, okay. Wasn't I was not I was not expecting that. <laughs> well, the superiority is is still all of these relations are relations of serving God because here the idea is God depends on me. I need to take care of him. If I don't take care of him, he will suffer. Okay. If I don't feed, if if I'm in the mood of being a mother, if I don't feed my child, you know, he's he's going to become sick or whatever. And then the final, which is considered the uh, the apex and the sort of ultimate relationship, uh, is the conjugal conjugal relationship. Uh, one becomes the lover of God. And of course, that you have expressed in the Song of Songs, in the, um, the Hebrew Bible, mm -hmm. so-called Old, Old Testament. Um, and, and that notion of God as, as a lover is not ex any means exclusive to our tradition. But it's very much developed in the um, Vaishnava tradition broadly, and especially, I would say, in the Gaudiya tradition. Okay, so in terms of trying to figure out the Hare Krishna model of God, so this is going to be affirming that God is passable, meaning that God can be affected emotionally by, by creatures. Yes, and, but I have to make a qualification mm -hmm, sure. here. And I haven't gotten to the bottom of this myself, uh, but according to Jiva Goswami, um, again, 16th century, um, creatures of this world, God has no experience of their suffering. What he feels is in relation to bhaktas in relation to those who on some level or other are turning toward him uh, or making some effort to turn toward him that's my oh, understanding but yeah but i can't say much more about that um, sure. it's understood also and i've just come across this recently i find it very interesting that Therefore, 
one consequence of this is that uh, the vehicle of grace uh, from God to the world is always a person. It's always an individual. It's a bhakta. And here, although I know most Christians won't appreciate it, but I think there is a parallel and appreciation of uh, the Christian notion of God's grace in the form of Jesus Christ. Um, there seems to be something resonating there. <laughs> That's interesting. Okay, so I want to make sure I'm getting this right because it sounds really interesting. So in one sense, it is the case like God can have a wide range of emotions. God can be emotionally impacted by by creatures, but not but not every single creature. So mm. God's not going to be empathizing with every single creature, only some of the creatures, the ones that are turning towards him. Was that the, was that the claim? That seems to be the claim. I don't want to put a final period on that sure. because uh, I haven't dug into it enough myself. Mm. And it, I, some of it I'm a bit uncomfortable with. Um, okay. And, and I think it's, I think it's complicated by the, uh, what I mentioned before, that uh, there is Paramatma, and Paramatma is every creature. And so how is it that Paramatma is not having some experience uh, of uh, the experience, is not in some sense sharing the experience of, uh, of creatures? That, I don't know. Mm. I have to look more into it. <laughs> no, fair enough. So, uh, so I think this is another area where there is some common ground between some uh, Indian philosophers and some some Christian thinkers. Mm -hmm. uh, so, in the in the year eighteen ninety, uh, that's when the earliest I can really trace this back. There was this big debate that flared up over impassibility because up until that point, the traditional mm -hmm. view was that God cannot be emotionally influenced at all by anything outside of Himself. He's in a state of pure, mm -hmm. undisturbed happiness. And nothing can like move God from that. And then in 1890, a group of people in Ireland and England, and uh, and then some, I think some people in Scotland, and they came in a little bit later, were just like, I don't like that. Um, that seems really awful. <laughs> it seems like if God's morally good, then He better suffer with us. <laughs> and then that sparks this like huge that. controversy. Uh, and then, yeah. and then when you get to 1970. Um, this view, this passability view, is declared the new orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. uh, so it just seems like it's just completely flipped throughout the 20th century of just going, no, God needs to suffer with us. And then there's this debate, though, that's ongoing, is how much empathy does God have? Uh -huh. So uh, one person uh, named Linda Zagzepsky wants to say God has what she calls omnisubjectivity, which is God's uh -huh. uh, ability to, to empathize with every single creaturely conscious state. Any mm -hmm. conscious state that any creature has, God can empathize with it. Mm -hmm. Whereas some others want to kind of push back a little bit and go, maybe not every single conscious state, because some conscious states, maybe that'd be really inappropriate for God to, to empathize with, or maybe be kind of creepy. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've written a bit on this. Uh, so I actually have a paper called uh, Omnisubjectivity and the Problem of Creepy, emo creepy Emotions. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's, it's, there's these kind of debates going on. Yeah. It, I, I went in some places that I was just like, this is going to be fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
so yeah, so this is, those are the kind of debates that are going on right now within Christian thought. And isn't that interesting? It well, just excuse me, but just broadly mm-hmm. speaking, isn't it interesting how different debates in theology sort of bubble up and and uh, spill over in particular times, and then they subside, and then something else comes up. It seems mm-hmm. like that's the history of theology that we find also it in really our is. tradition. Yeah. And that's that's what I've noticed when I've studied. The, um, I mean, I'm still very, very much an amateur at uh, a lot of the different Indian philosophical traditions, but I just see these different debates pop up, and I'm like, oh wow, that's that's fascinating. Christians didn't talk about that until like you know, like 100, 200 years later, or oh, Christians mm-hmm. were already talking about that before then. So I can see these kind of things. So I so this was another case where I find this really fascinating. Where you're saying this this de- debate about. God's emotions and uh, how much empathy does God have that goes quite far back. Whereas in Christianity, it seems like it only goes back to 1890, maybe a little bit earlier. I, but I've not been able to trace anything uh, sooner than that. Yeah. You mentioned, um, so you mentioned, you, you mentioned Linda Zagzebski and I just happened to mm-hmm. have in front of me a, a note I took because I, I did a little reading of, something she wrote um, some time ago because I was curious how she presents the idea of personhood. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw she has five, I have the note here, I, she has five different uh, features of personhood. Uh, a person has a rational nature a person possesses subjectivity, a person has relationships with other persons, a person is free, and finally a person is incommunicable. I'm not sure I Mm. completely understand the last of these, but I I guess in simple language, you can't replace one person with another person and say, you know, what's what's your problem? This is another person. We'll put in this person instead of that person. Um, right. Yeah. It's a, that it's would a very be something uh, I'm curious in the Western about. tradition. Yeah. So in the Western tradition, that that word "incommunicable" um, gets used a lot, and it is it's exactly what you what you described it as. It's you can't just repeat this individual that they really are a unique individual. You can't just replace them. Um, mm-hmm. There's something unique. There's there's this an essence that is Ryan and there's an essence that is Kenneth and they are two different things. You can't swap them out. Right. <laughs> That's the idea. <laughs> yeah. So Arjuna I'm was going to ask, I think how I are we doing on time? Uh, oh, I was just asking yeah. how much are we doing on time? This is about 15 more minutes, which will bring us to the two hour mark. Cool. Okay. Because yeah. I had And then I should, I should run because I have another meeting. Mm-hmm. I should okay. run in then let's about 15 do... minutes. Okay, how about this? Let's just do one more question, um, and then we can just wrap up so that way you can get to your meeting. Does that sound good? Sounds good. Okay, so I had a question about timelessness, because you had said in the video that you would see God as timeless, uh, and I wasn't certain if that, like, what exactly you meant by that, if that was really uh, what was going on here. So I guess just start with, like, what exactly do you think it would mean to say that God is timeless? 
Uh, I'm not sure that I know myself what I'm saying. <laughs> but okay, fair enough. When it, whenever we, <laughs> yeah, whenever when, whenever the tradition talks in such terms, uh, it's often referring to this other aspect of uh, ultimate reality, which we would rather maybe not call God as such, but rather as Brahman. As the we we use this term, you know, uh, person impersonal. So, Brahman is that uh, aspect of what is called Advaya Jnana. Advaya means non-dual, and Jnana knowledge, or sometimes the phrase is translated as absolute truth. Uh, when we when we would speak of Uh, time in absolute terms like that, then were God being beyond time, then we would speak about Brahman. Okay. And having said that, uh, we understand Brahman is an inferior uh, level of comprehension of God. Uh, superior to that level of comprehension is um, is a, a comprehension of paramatma. Superior to that comprehension is that of Bhagavan. And with Bhagavan, then we bring in uh, the varieties. And amongst the varieties, or we may want to say uh, facilitating variety, we have time. Or, or the what we may call, um, yeah, the the movement uh, which time manifests. I don't know how to put it exactly. Okay, okay. Um, so, in the Western traditions, to say that something's timeless is to say that it exists without beginning and without end, so it's eternal. Mm-hmm. But then it also, you say, it exists without succession. So it's not doing one thing and then another and then another. And it exists uh, without temporal location. So you say, it, does it exist now? Well, no, because that's a temporal location. Um, did it exist then, back then? Well, no, it's a, it's a, that'd be a temporal location, some kind of temporal relationship. So, so that's what we mean by timeless in the Western tradition. And so when I've been trying to read through different Hindu thinkers, and I'll see this claim that God's timeless... I don't think that's what I don't think they mean timeless in the way that we do uh, in the Western right. discussions. So I want to get clarity on that for my own uh, like w- my own work because well, it sounds like God exists now. Um, why not? <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Sure. Good. <laughs> and <laughs> this is that both and thing. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think where the where the bewilderment might come in the Western tradition is a similar sort of thinking, uh, which finds, uh, which runs up against the paradox in in geometry. Uh, for example, that a point um, in geometry has no dimension, and yet a line is made up of points, uh, which give it extension, which give it length. 
So, you know, it, it's mind-boggling. Uh, I think the general thrust of the Indian tradition broadly, and especially the bhakti traditions, uh, is is to look for the both and wherever possible. And to say, God can exist right now at the moment, why not? And simultaneously, he can be uh, beyond, beyond time. Why not? <laughs> uh, and one way this is expressed is that um, God, and this is in the, also in the Bhagavad Gita, that he is beyond um, both existence and non-existence. Sat-asat, yonish. Janma uh, Yonishu. He's he is both. Uh, well, Sat and Asa can be taken as cause and effect, um, but it can also mean existing and non not existing. And another way it's uh, put is in the Bhagavata Purana, in the first of four what are considered core uh, stanzas. The Lord is saying, I existed prior to everything. Um, at that time, nothing existed but me. I exist now when everything, and I will exist after everything else does not exist. Uh, so the emphasis is on the word aham, I, uh, which is pointing again to the personhood uh, of divinity, that there is, from, from all perspectives, uh, there's no, yeah, personhood cannot be reduced. I think that's uh, maybe the, uh, the essential idea. That person, persons cannot be um, reduced to anything less than person. Mm -hmm. Right. And specifically in the person of God, the personhood of God. And so however we want to regard time and God's uh, involvement in or detachment from time, in both cases, the personhood remains. Okay, so it, did that, it sounds Did that make like, any sense? <laughs> it, it does. So it sounds like God's eternal in the sense that he exists without beginning and without end, and it's impossible yes. for God to cease to exist. Um, right. And then it sounds like God is temporal in the sense that God does one thing and then another and then another. Like God does have a past and God will mm -hmm. have a future and God's mm -hmm. existing right now. So God was sustaining a different universe in existence. That one's gone. Now he's sustaining this universe in existence uh, and he's going to keep doing that in the future. Um, so it mm -hmm. sounds like he's temporal in that in this sense of he does one thing and then another and then another. He can also do things simultaneously. Mm -hmm. um, and so it is that, you know, the, all of the living beings of this world are doing whatever they're doing 
um, because he's um, allowing that to happen. And he may be more or less personally involved in, in a particular. He will be more involved when there is this uh, gesture of turning toward God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and less involved when it's simply the laws of nature. Okay. This seems like a good place to wrap up. So in terms of the discussion and trying to help me figure out where I want to place like the Hare Krishna in like the different conceptions of God, it sounds like this is a a version of panentheism because it denies creation out of nothing. And it has God always creating a universe of some sort uh, for the sake of love, which is very similar to some different contemporary panentheist thinkers who want to make these kind of claims. Sounds like God's passable because he's got a wide range of emotions and he can empathize with some creatures. How much empathy? I don't know. We can, you didn't want to make, you weren't sure yet, but there's some kind of empathy with some creatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like God's temporal in some sense, but he's certainly eternal. And then it looks like God can have foreknowledge, um, but, you know, but it, what's more important is that personal knowledge that God has of, of his creatures. And so this looks a lot like uh, a lot of what a, a lot of contemporary panentheists would want to say about God. So I guess that's where I want to mm-hmm. place uh, the Hare Krishna view is, is in kind of in that panentheistic tradition. Yeah, I think uh, in general that's where it would fit. And but myself not being uh, as knowledgeable as I'd like like to be on the subject and, and not knowing enough of the option uh, that you have sure. uh, mentioned, the five or six different options. Uh, I don't want to say, yes, you got it exactly right. But that's right. It. Of course. Discussion yeah. over. <laughs> yeah. So panentheism but, that specifies, oh, sorry, you can continue. Well, no, go, go ahead, Arjuna, because um, I am a bit watching the clock. That specifies, uh, you know, whether classical theism, neoclassical theism, and whatnot. But then open theism is a separate question altogether. Are there other separate mm-hmm. questions? Mm, oh, like, well, there's some, so some panentheists want to follow the open theist and say the future is open and God doesn't know it. But when I look historically at all the different people who are supposed to be panentheists, they're divided on that massively. And they're also divided passively on whether or not God's timeless or temporal. Um, so the panentheist category, it's it's a bit tricky to figure out exactly what it is. Um, but it's supposed to be that God always exists with a universe of some sort or is always creating. And a lot of the contemporary ones, they really want to say God's passable and, and temporal and doesn't know the future. But not everybody in that tradition, not everybody who's called themselves panentheist does that. So One possible, uh, maybe I can insert one more Mm -hmm. thought I had uh, with regard to panentheism. Going back to your discussion, the two of you had uh, about the Sri Vaishnava notion of the universe being God's body. Mm -hmm. I thought, and, and then there was discussion about the problems with analogies and the limitations of analogies and so on. And I thought uh, the use of the analogy in the Vaishnava, specifically Sri Vaishnava, possibly sometimes it comes into the 
Gaudiya tradition, but uh, the use of that analogy is is intended to help um, understand the relation of God to his creation in terms of our experience, our quite ordinary experience of ourselves in our bodies, where the understanding is there is a self and spirit, uh, which is, in a sense, occupying the body. So how is it that we experience our body? How much do we know about our body? Uh, I'm always struck by the thought how little we know. Um, you know, how do I digest when I, after I eat, I put something in my mouth and then there's incredibly complex uh, processes of meta metabolism that go on. But um, we do know a lot about our body. We know about the limitations of it, and we know how we can use it, and so on. So it might be a, a direction of thought uh, for understanding something more about panentheism. Maybe. Sounds good. So if, if we had all the adjectives in a row, which ones where would be panentheism? Uh, open theism is left as an open question. Passable, but we're not pinning down to what extent. Is mm -hmm. more? No, that, those are the main characteristics I was able to... I mean, there's other, a lot of other things to say, but that's... Um, but yeah, I was just trying to be respectful that we got to wrap up. All right, cool. Let's, let's wrap yeah. up there. So. Maybe we can continue another time. <laughs> yeah, I'd, sure. I'd, I'd love to have you guys on again. That was uh, a lot of fun. It's always nice bringing together scholars. For high quality I'd like to hear, for example, I, I would think you, Ryan, could explain something more about open theism and mm -hmm. uh, if I'm right or wrong, that process theology would go into that camp. Uh, they want to, they've had a bunch of debates to make sure that they're distinct views. Um, okay. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that, but that, that was, uh, there's, a, there's a whole backstory there I can explain another time. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Mm -hmm. Well, for me, it's been a great pleasure. Uh, and uh, I hope the conversation can continue. I hope so, too. I learned a lot from this. So thank you so much. I'm, I'm afraid I was doing um, more, more of the talking than I should. I'd like to learn something more from you. <laughs> Maybe, Maybe next the next time, uh, dialogue. Next yeah. time Kenneth can yes. ask the questions and Ryan can be the one answering. Sounds good. Right. <laughs> All right. So we'll wrap it up there. Thanks to both of our guests. If you like this sort of stuff, be sure to subscribe. Uh, let us know what you think down in the comments. Hit the like button to help us in the algorithm. Um, lots more coming up tomorrow morning. Well, it's morning my time. I've got two neuroscientists discussing the hard problem of consciousness. So stay tuned for that. And oh. I'm in January, which is quite far off, I've got Joe Schmidt on. We're going to be discussing whether God plays a flute or not. That's that's how we've described oh. it. <laughs> uh, that should be a lot of fun. Joe Schmidt specializes in conceptions of God and, and he'll he'll have some fun objections. Okay. <laughs> cool. I'll Sounds see you in the good. next one. Howdy Krishna. <laughs>